0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast, where we cover everything from crypto finance to global macro. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. If you notice the intro music is different from my usual opener, that's because we're featuring music by our guest this week, Justin Blau. Justin is a world-renowned American DJ who has made a name for himself not only in the music industry as a musician and a producer, but also in crypto as an entrepreneur and investor. Justin has been a longtime champion of NFTs, and Tom and I got to catch up with him this week following a show he played in Las Vegas where he opened up for his good friend, Elenium. We go behind the scenes with Justin to hear about his NFT journey and his thoughts on financial planning and DeFi. Although Justin is no doubt an amazing artist who makes incredible music, We wanted to make sure you guys also learn about his other interests, talents, and qualities. He's such a great and humble guy. I'm sure you'll really enjoy this conversation. Without further ado, Justin Blau. Hey Justin, welcome to Crypto Unstacked and thanks so much for joining us in our new CreatorFi video series where we're featuring a bunch of participants in the NFT space from artists to collectors to platforms and we're really glad to be able to feature you today on our show. Um, I know Tom has known you for a while so we'll hand it over to him to give the origin story there.
1: Justin, I think I've shared this with you but... I have kind of known you from the days of guilt Pleasure, Action, and like I think that's like the first couple albums that you've dropped. A lot of people know you as the you know, American DJ, but we know that you're much more than a musician and a DJ. So we wanted to ask you, how would you describe Justin Blau to our audience who are not familiar with who you are?
2: Yeah, no, that's a great way to start. And, and thank you both so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> I think if I, if I had to identify myself, I would say I'm a musician, producer, entrepreneur, and investor, all of the above. I, I've always treated my DJ career as a business because it is a business. Um, I'm, in, I'm in the creative business, which is a great business to be in um, because it kind of get, you get to combine left brain, right brain, and really strategize on how to get your creations out to the most amount of people. That's ultimately what creates, at least for me, the most emotional fulfillment, right? So it's kind of a balance between those two things. But if I could identify myself, that's that's probably how I would.
0: And with your involvement in NFTs, I think it's so interesting because for you, your perception of NFTs is that it allows the public to invest in musicians and creators for the first time in a very scalable way, right? Assuming the NFT industry is not just... A blip in kind of crypto history, but really here to stay. Now that we have a lot of this infrastructure built out, can you tell us about why you've been so passionate about empowering artists to monetize on their work without needing to have an intermediary like a record label step in and do all of those things that you mentioned earlier?
2: A hundred percent. That that is exactly why I've always been excited about NFTs and and why I've been excited about distributed ledger technology distributed ledger technology in general, um, the idea that it's 2021, and any artist, whether it be a musician, an author, a gamer, a YouTuber, we all have the tools of the internet to do whatever we want. And, and that's not something that existed, you know, 15, 20 years ago, to, to the scale that it does today, having all the tools and information necessary to put yourself out there. And in a world like that, where where there's now real monetization happening on the platform side, Artists have always kind of been marginalized. And, you know, whether that be visual artists who post their work on Instagram and can't make any money, even though Instagram's advertising and rehypothecating the interest on the back end. Um, the same is true of music, where, you know, Spotify actually does pay out significantly compared to what music used to be, where no one was buying anything and everyone was torrenting everything. But in this case, um, record labels are extracting a lot of that value from their kind of predatory deals that they send early artists and we, you know, with promises to early artists of getting widespread distribution, and also you know, to convince earlier artists to kind of quit their day jobs to pursue their creative passions. They definitely, definitely need a little bit of money, right? So labels have kind of served that purpose in the past uh, many decades. Now, as all of these different technologies and, and creativity are converging in a way that we haven't seen before, artists in general, no matter what kind of art they create, they have more power to monetize their fans through all of this technology. And the reason why I think this NFT explosion happened is because everyone kind of realized it. COVID kind of forced everyone into a very narrow hole of like all creators had to try to figure out, well, how do I make money now? Because I can't go anywhere. I can't do anything. And inherently with all creators, it's either, you know, either they're they're going somewhere to monetize or they're filming something somewhere to monetize. Right. So being inside doesn't really help uh, most creators in their journey. And everyone got really innovative and interesting and started thinking about things differently. Simultaneously, you had a lot of people who had you know, built up a lot of wealth from the crypto space who really believe in creativity and believe in creators and wanted to invest in those creators. And so you had this really interesting moment in time that I think ha- started happening in the middle of last year, around July, when we saw Trevor Jones sell uh, his Picasso bull for $55,000 on Nifty Gateway. That was such a big, pivotal moment. It was like one of the first, you know, let's call it one of the first five-figure sales that ever happened. And, you know, fast forward to right. only eight months later and we're seeing, you know, tens and 20 and, you know, people at $70 million sales. And and the reality is that art is the, – the value of art is subjective, right? It's really hard to price. but. To many people, it's priceless. It's the emotions that they get that they can't even pay for, especially music where you know the emotions that someone gets from a song could sometimes help them through a really difficult point in life. Um, and, and the same is true of any art form, right? And so all these art forms have kind of been platformized and marginalized and all these platforms and have made it really difficult for artists to capture the value that they actually create. All of a sudden you introduce this technology that enables patrons to really support artists in a way that isn't just a subscription, but in a way more, you know, something that creates ownership surrounding an artist, not just a subscription like on Patreon. Right. And so that, that idea of ownership is so powerful to a collector and a creator, myself included. I, I collect a lot of NFTs as well. So it's like being being able to say that you support someone by owning a piece of their art is so powerful. And for the first time ever, we're seeing that hit the digital world. It's existed in the physical world. But it hasn't really existed in the digital world.
0: Yeah, it's it's getting the audience, I think, to understand what digital representation of physical works means. And especially for for my parents, for example, uh, there is that hurdle because what they've associated value with is what's tangible, right? What they can feel like a bag or, you know, collective sneaker or something like that. And when it comes to digital representation where, yeah, you are opening up a, a file on your phone or you're showing it on a screen, um, that, that intangibility, I feel like, is, is, is something that not a lot of people are, are used to. Um, so on the NFT side, I think, yeah, there's for the collectors, there's a hurdle. And for the artists, it's understanding creator economics 2.0. Basically, understanding how they can optimize on this new technology to basically yeah, start kind of reeling back their ownership uh, from these various platforms. And we're seeing Instagram definitely do that. And, and a lot of other Web2 platforms kind of just catch up and say, hey, don't leave us. Right. We're, we're, we're seeing the flood.
2: Is, to that <laughs> point, Leslie, to that point, I do have a couple friends at Instagram and Instagram just rolled out their their patronage badge program on Instagram live. And have you guys seen anything about this? It's fascinating.
1: No, we haven't.
2: If you commit to doing a, at a minimum 15 minute live stream on Instagram once per week, and, and you're a verified creator account, so any, anyone with a verified badge who's a creator account, if you commit to doing a 15 minute live stream once a week, Instagram will pay you $250 a week um, to, to actually just live stream. And then your fans can purchase badges of support for $5 during the live stream. So this is this is really just the tip of the iceberg <laughs> when the entire world is starting to realize, oh my God, digital ownership is really powerful and we've barely scratched the surface.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's super interesting. And I think also a big part about like moving from web two to sort of web three. A big part of that for, I think, creators is also the economics behind it, right? Um, where in the Web 2, you know, a lot of the value has been captured by um, the platforms, distributors, or in music, record labels took a big share. But Web 3 sort of redistribute that value back to creators. And we would love to hear a little bit about, like, can you break down what economics of Web 2 sort of looks like versus Web 3? And Give us sort of sense for how much better it is for creators to um, think about the Web three, right?
2: Yeah, a great, great topic to break down. So, in Web two, maybe we stay focused on a couple of types of artists, so just so as not to get too far away sure. from things. In Web mm-hmm. two world, let's let's talk about YouTubers, musicians, and visual artists. Um, visual artists have actually been the most marginalized by platforms. More than musicians and probably and, and definitely more than YouTubers, YouTubers are probably least marginalized because they do they are able to capture a lot of ad revenue. YouTubers are paid quite well. Um, visual artists just upload content all the time and they none of those artists collect any of the data of the viewers of that content that's all collected by platforms, and they're literally paid zero. So the only way visual artists can really make money is via brand deals or via you know, work for hire type deals. And that's where, you know, in my case, I partnered with my art director, Slime Sunday. Um, He was struggling to monetize during COVID because a lot of the musicians that would pay him for work for hire just didn't have the money to pay him to design stuff. And so you see a lot of these digital creators make absolutely beautiful work, whether that's Beeple or Slime Sunday or Fuck Render or whoever it might be. And none of them have been paid for the amount of effort and time that they spent on their craft for the past 10 20 years making digital art and so i think the reason why the first kind of wave of of the nft explosion happened for specifically for digital art is because those types of artists have been the most marginalized and have been able to monetize the least compared to any other type of artist and so it's no surprise that the web3 world kind of gives them an opportunity to create scarcity within their work and kind of to eliminate this right click save mentality that has existed for their work for for years. And all of a sudden, you know, these people who have worked on their craft for decades, can finally be appreciated for that craft. And I think that's why we saw such an explosion of NFTs in the visual space. First, that also inspired me to think, well, what does it mean for NFTs to exist in music? Like, what does that product look like? What should it look like? And so, in January of this past year, I just started experimenting. And, you know, All of the things I've done so far have kind of been experiments and figuring out, well, what does collectible music really mean? What does owning music really mean in the Web3 world? And what I've landed on is people who own the Web3 editions of music should be able to participate in the success of the song itself. Beyond just owning something collectible, they should own a piece of the song. Um, That's kind of what I've been focused on for the past couple months and what I'm focused on for the future is granting my holders and my believers an actual piece of ownership and the rights and the IP of of a song. And I think that's really powerful. So I think that Web3, you know, will impact music in that way, where instead of, you know, giving up a lot of my own IP to a label or a distributor, I now can actually collaborate with my fan base on making that IP popular, right? If, if a fan actually owns a piece of a song, how much more likely are they to spread the word about it? How much more incentivized are they to tell their friends about a blouse song? Um, it's pretty incredible the grassroots movement that movements that you can create. And I think we kind of saw the same thing happen in the DeFi world very organically, right? When people are financially aligned, a lot of really cool things happen. That's just never happened in the creative world, right? Um, or at least the per- the consumer of the creativity is never the record label, is never the platform, right? It, that They've never had a financial incentive to be involved. So when you start creating these financial incentives in this self-governed data, especially, right? Because I've had maybe a billion people stream my music, but I don't know who any of them are. Um, when, when you start democratizing all of that access thing, things get super, super interesting. And so in the Web 2 world, the only monetization mechanics were, you know, advertising and data. In the Web 3 world, you now have a direct relationship between creator and consumer of that content. And that's when things just start to blossom in ways that I think we're just beginning to see today.
0: Yeah, you have two fans here, obviously, but what have you been (laughs) hearing from the rest of your fan base, right? Those who are not crypto natives have not been really following any of your work behind the scenes over the past few years, by the way, leading up to this point, you know, you just magically come around to NFTs in March, right? So what have these non-crypto native fans, yeah, been saying to you?
2: Um, For the first time in the past four years, regular fans, regular, and I I hate to use the word fan, I would say regular supporters and and listeners are starting to really understand the power of this technology. But four, four years ago, when I experimented with um, like uh, proof of proof of uh, attendance tokens and stuff like that at a music festival that I did in San Francisco um, people thought it was crazy they were like w- why do we care about this digital asset that's limited and at the time I used this is in 2017 at the time I tried to explain to people that the Instagram verification check mark was a per- was, was such a great example of digital scarcity everybody wants one but it doesn't really mean anything outside of the fact that like it's, it's verification, right? It's like, it's you, but yet it's so coveted and desired. And in fact, there was a time that people would, you know, pay the the kind of gate gatekeepers to even get verified. And that's why Instagram eliminated the regular person's ability to, you know, submit people for verification and stuff. It was like pretty fascinating time. But the fact that something is digitally scarce and valuable, is just a new concept to people, or at least it was in 2017. Now, People are like excited to flex the art that they, the digital art that they own, or to flex the, the content that they have access to and, and that they that they've purchased. Right? It's it's almost like a an emotional stamp of approval and and, and a display of patronage. It's a really powerful message. And so, in my case, um, we did an NFT airdrop at a show of mine in Miami, my first show back from COVID uh, during the, the Bitcoin conference. And there were only 99 editions, of course, from a QR code. They were gone. They were free. But they were gone in a second. And they're reselling in the secondary market for thousands of dollars. And so I go to play this other show, this big stadium show yesterday, and everyone's like, is there going to be an NFT? Is it like fans are you know? I'm like, oh, my God. It's like it, we've reached critical mass, right? Like people know about this stuff. How involved are they yet? Like how many people have, you know, self-hosted wallets versus just an exchange wallet versus just a wallet at all? I don't know the answer, but I definitely think we've reached this point of curiosity and excitement amongst the mainstream. If, if you ask anybody on the street, if you, if you use the phrase NFT today, I guarantee you they've heard it before. But two, three years ago, people will be like, I, I did a news interview on Fox uh, Fox Business News, and I, I I said non-fungible token towards the end of the interview. And the, the news anchor actually kind of, uh, kind of cut me off and was like, let's move on to the next person to interview because it started getting a little bit technical right and i still have this i still have this clip of me in 20 it was 2018 doing this interview on the news saying non-fungible token and getting cut off and i just i still think it's so funny because no one really knew what was going on then and, and now yeah now it's just the curiosity is is exciting a lot of people
1: the funny thing is like you know how DeFi people call it out it's ahead in terms of you know the infrastructure and toolings and all that but if you speak to people on the street They'll know NFTs more than what DeFi is, and I think. And then if you look, read articles related to crypto, they tend to talk about NFTs first before anything else. Um, so I think that's that's a really fascinating thing that you just pointed out.
2: And, and the other thing worth mentioning for for anyone listening is so many people have talked about this. Every time the word crypto is brought up, it's almost inherently linked to this word bubble. And and I hate the word bubble because bubble implies everything goes to zero, right? When a bubble is popped, nothing, like there is no bubble anymore. Um, I, I always like to use the, the word, I- instead of using bubble, I like to use um, storm or movement or surge, right? We're seeing just this 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 surge in popularity and inevitably there's like slight corrections along the way, right? Um, but the reality is it's here to stay. So it might feel like a bubble from where we were like, three months ago, but six months ago, we're still so far ahead from where we were six, eight months ago, like way far ahead. Um, I remember being excited to sell something for $500 that was digitally native. That was like unbelievable. Who who knew you could sell art online for $500? That's crazy. I remember that feeling. Um, so when people are, you know, speak about it in these other ways, it's kind of like just a failure to recognize that we're really just at the precipice of, of this movement.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. And I guess with a lot of excitement in the Sort of the NFTs, you know, a lot of creators are starting to enter. But I think as creators start to participate in this creator journey that we talk about at CreatorFi, a lot of people sort of um, don't really think ahead and plan ahead. And in our previous videos, we break down the CreatorFi journey into sort of four parts as first is, you know, doing like a sniff test, you do your due diligence, sort of research, try to understand what's going on. And then you sort of move on to you know, building your supporter base, to sharing your narrative, and then once you do that correctly, people come around and purchase your, you know, artworks. And then, lastly, but most important thing is financial planning, right? So once you make money, like how to plan your finances ahead, because you know a lot of artists sort of never, ma- whoever made money, never really made this much money before, and. Right. It's. I think it's easy to sort of blow that money easily if you never had an experience managing that larger sum of money. So we just kind of wanted to um, kind of talk about and um, hear about what your thoughts on um, sort of each step of the way of how creators should think about. So let's start from the beginning, right? From the sort of the basic yeah. research. Great. What are some some of the like resources that you think are great that creators should. Think about or or if you're from day one, like where would you start on this NFT journey?
2: Yeah, I think I think identity is always the most important place to start. Figuring out who you want to be as an artist, which doesn't necessarily have to relate to who you are, right? Like being anonymous is really interesting. You have you have really successful artists like Pac, who's remained anonymous. But but figuring out what your identity is, especially in the digital world. Is, is extremely important because that's what piques people's interest and kind of helps you as an artist begin to form a narrative surrounding your creations. You know, in my case, I'm a musician and a DJ, I make electronic music, but a big part of my narrative has been the fact that I've been, that I've been experimenting with NFTs for a while. And I think people really are, are attracted to that. And that's just matter of fact, it just happened to exist that way. And I'm very lucky that I was interested in this stuff early on. But for a new creator to get involved, figuring out who you are, is is and who you want to be online. Um, both of those things, I think, are really important, and that should inform kind of a consistent thread of all the creative content that that you release. And so, you know, of course, the content has to be great, right? Um, that that's that's that doesn't even have to be said. But but identity is such a big part of it, and the most successful artists um, are those who have stayed super true to that initial identity that they've created. To use Pac as an amazing example, or to use Feuocius. Feocious is unapologetically feocious, and that is so powerful. It's such a powerful story. So, you know, I'd say identity is is always step one um, when you're thinking about what you want to create online and and how you want to distribute it. Um, And then I think getting to the distribution part, step two is, you know, the best way to get your work out there is not, in my opinion, to kind of, not really to spam people, not to spam collectors, not to spam, you know, self-promotion or anything like that. Um, to me, even as a musician before the NFT world, I would just send my work for feedback to people I trusted. And then if they like it, they spread the word about it organically, right? So I'd say the best way to get distribution is to share your work with people and, and ask for their opinion instead of ask instead of saying, hey, I've got a drop on this date, come check it out. Like, no, like, what do you think of this? It's such a powerful way, because then, then the viewer or the listener... Feels like they're involved in the process and it gets them emotionally invested in you as a creator. And so keep that in mind as as you as you do send your work to other people. um, And I'm speaking to all the creators who are listening, of course. um, Keep that in mind. You know, asking for feedback is such a powerful way to get support. Assuming, you know, the person likes your stuff Um, and maybe someone doesn't. And that's okay too. But um, getting feedback is, is such a powerful means of distribution, and most people never think about it that way. So I would highly suggest spending a lot of time asking for people's opinions. And I think it's it's really helpful. Um, I guess the next part of the journey, and, and uh, Tom, if I skipped a step, are we getting to the point of the financial planning part or there's something in between? I feel like I'm missing something in between.
1: I think that was a great tip to how to like get involved in a community, right? Like be part of this NFT, you kind of understand what NFTs are, right? Because there's a lot of videos out there you can watch. And you kind of um, start doing the distribution and building that base. But do you have some more other tips that creators should think about? For let's say, you know, th- there's just so many. I mean, as a collector, I get so many emails. Or not emails, but DMs every single day. And then it just I just get flooded. And then, like, how do you navigate through that inbox? Or Or is there any other great tips that you would share for
2: people who are listening? Yeah, I think on both sides, at, at least for me, a lot of art and creativity just has natural gravitation. It can't really be forced between two people. It has it has to be natural. And one of my favorite stories is I, I just met I met this kid on Twitter. His name is Justin. He's young. He's like 17, 18 year old graphic artist. I just loved his work. He was, you know, selling on super rare. I just really wanted to own it. I didn't have to think about it. He didn't have to sell me on it. I just, I just wanted it, you know? And and, and those are like, if you can, if you can create those kind of moments as frequently as possible, that's how you really build a reputation, both as a, as a creator and, and as a collector, right? As a collector, um, being a tastemaker is really important, important, finding those artists early and supporting them early on, is a great way to earn those artists loyalty and to, and to establish those relationships and tom just like you you know i have great relationships with all of my collectors to the extent where if anyone needs anything at all i'm always available and you know one of one of the other winners of the auction um tim illustrator and i'm sure tom you, you may know tim personally or you know, yeah, yeah. You know he was in town for the concert this weekend the stadium concert and Of course i'm going to bring him backstage you know because he supported me on my creative journey and there's just so much synergy and symbiosis between creators and collectors so you know understanding what you like and and supporting supporting both collectors and creators early on um is extremely important i mean I've, i've supported collectors in in certain ways where um i'll never forget you know we one of the other winners of my auction wanted a, a live stream for this charity event that they were doing, of course, I would do I would I would be helpful for a charity event, like no questions asked, asked. And like, that's the kind of stuff that like really creates relationships. And so much of the web three world is directly personal, right? Like the entire distributed ledger tech world is built upon direct relationships, whether it be between wallets or protocols that assist people to be direct, right? Um, that's the point. So so there's no sense in, in thinking anything otherwise for the the emotional aspect of, of what it means to be a creative or a collector
0: 100 percent there as you've kind of gone through your journey both building up obviously your brand as a musician uh, which you've been doing right over the past decade or so um, but also building up your brand within the crypto space right um, we're, we're seeing not just the technologists but we're also seeing now just People from the creator economy just being so excited about crypto and using NFTs as a gateway, right? Which is what we've been talking about. How would you say you've built up your own personal brand over the past couple of years?
2: <laughs> oh man, that's a great that's a great question. When I first started, a lot of people probably not probably I, I know they were they were asking themselves the question who Who's this DJ that's like getting involved in crypto? That, that that's what I would get early in the early on is like people were like, What why is he doing this? This doesn't really make sense. It was like, I'm genuinely interested. I, I studied finance in college. I, I love financial technology. Um, I had a I had a crazy incident with Bank of America where I couldn't move I couldn't move money for a week to make an investment in real estate. And I was just like, This is so inefficient. I, I found ETH, I fell in love with, with the tech the fact that you can move money around so quickly on weekends without calling anybody was so powerful. And I just fell in love with it and wanted to learn everything possible about it. And I think the the way that I've, you know, I guess I guess I guess it's crazy to say it, like I guess the way I've built a reputation in crypto, which three years ago, I was just excited to learn about it. The way that I've done it is just by reading a lot and, and talking to people that I think are a lot smarter than me and learning from them, you know, just, just asking the right questions and being active, being involved on twitter you know reading a lot of publications like i read i read the defiant very frequently Uh, you know i read coin telegraph coin desk i read a lot of stuff um i like the first thing i do in the morning is check what's happening in crypto before i check anything else it's just it's become a force of habit and, and it's something that you can't really um you know and then and then i've made friends amazing friendships along the way i would say some of my best friends are actually, I probably have more best friends in crypto than I do music, and I'm, I'm being completely honest. I really think so. Um, I've just developed such amazing, amazing personal relationships through mutual fascination with with the technology. And so, you know, for those who are, who are really, you know, maybe new to this and diving in, don't be afraid. The community really does embrace you if you if you take the time to learn. If you don't take the time to learn and you're just in it for a quick buck, it's pretty easy to smell that. Um, But if you're really excited about this stuff and and you believe in it long term, um, you know, at least for me, I enjoy now in hindsight, I had so many amazing teachers along the way. I enjoy teaching my friends about it who really want to learn like. Steve Aoki is a great example. He's always been involved in crypto a little bit, but now he's like, I want to learn about DeFi. I want, can you come over, Justin? Like, can you show me how to use Compound? And I literally, I, I drove over to his house the other week, and I'm like, showing him how to use. But like, it's that kind of those kind of interactions that are so, you know, powerful. Um, being genuinely curious and, and asking questions and engaging with the community, all the things that everyone else says, but but do it as much as you possibly can, and be 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 um. What's the word I'm looking for? Be intent about it, right? Like mm. be intentional about mm. it.
0: Are all the coolest DJs now living in Las Vegas? I just have a quick question to pop in there.
2: <laughs> Still I'm a sorry. lot of LA, but, uh, some, so a lot in Vegas.
1: <laughs> and I was also curious, like I would actually like initially thought like artists were tend to be, you know, non economics or finance focused would not be interested in DeFi, but do you do you see a lot of interest from artists around you or want to learn about DeFi?
2: one of the things that's really interesting is creators have always just as you said tom you know in the past creators have always been focused on their art and haven't necessarily been too financially interested at least in my experience just having a lot of friends who are creators they just want to make their art which is amazing and respectable but as like culture has changed you know what has changed access to investing in general has become it's just been easier for people right Um, and creators whether they have a little bit of money or a lot of money they want to deploy capital and i think that you know a lot of djs specifically um are like you know we sit in front of a computer and code sounds all day so there's a lot of similarities (laughs) with um with engineers and, and people in tech i think there's just like an interesting parallel um of excitement between you know, investing in technology and investing time in creating music. There's something about both of those things that are really similar. But I also think that a lot of creators are starting to realize that they, they don't want to get stuck in the cycle of just, you know, you know, sa- saving cash, spending cash, saving cash, spending cash. That's what like creators have done. And so people are curious. they want to learn how to invest, but they don't necessarily know how yet. At the same time, there are all these amazing tools online, whether it be YouTube or you know newsletters. There are more tools today than there ever were to teach people how to invest and how, how to get involved. Right. Um, so so, you know, historically, I don't think creators were very interested, but maybe only because the opportunities didn't really they weren't as obvious to them. Right. And then you have things like the game, like like Wall Street Bets and GameStop just, you know, change the world. You know, that, that, that's a historic moment where, you know, you have all these interested people who, who are curious to learn about markets and investing just gang up and and create mayhem, right? Like there's a lot of power in numbers and in scale. So I guess to to the to be specific, hundred um, percent historically, creators have been less interested in investing and in preserving capital and are way more interested in just creating art. But I think that culture has shifted a bit, and everyone is kind of forced to think about it a little bit more.
0: I think it has something to do with now people realizing that uh, you can invest in culture there is that mentality as well where it feels more accessible and it's not like you need to for example hire an advisor to think for you to tell you what to invest in or if you're an unaccredited investor feeling like there's a whole world of high yielding opportunities that because I'm a small fish let's call it I don't have access to so why try I'm just gonna invest in the next ETF or mutual fund, eh, that's not interesting, right? So there's a sense of perhaps for a lot of people who aren't naturally inclined to want to understand investing in finance to say, it's just not fun to do it. Finances are complex. And so when you add in those two variables, um, it just precludes a lot of people. Whereas crypto, it's naturally social. It's a complex industry. (laughs) As you know, right, the learning curve can be steep. But the ideas of, of how you're able to participate in the financial ecosystem in crypto, once you kind of get over that initial hurdle, I feel like the act of doing things like taking out a loan is not made to be very complex. The act of trading oh, yeah, and good. placing a trade is not meant to be complex, right? Initiating a payment is not meant to make you feel so frustrated that you just move all of your assets out of Bank of America to go to an alternative financial ecosystem. Um, So I think the beauty of crypto is like the simplicity that it can enable all of these Mm. historically complex features that we've just naturally expect to be the case because that's been the status quo up until this point, right?
2: That's, you just explained it I, I wish I could have recorded that and 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 played we it. We have it recorded. <laughs> Go, we do. We do. We're doing it right now. But I, I will share this with friends because it's exactly as you said. There is an initial hurdle, right? But once you get past that hurdle, the world opens up in ways that are quite simple. Uniswap is one of those things where, you know, if, if you're on even Robinhood or you know any trading software, and there's an order book, and like a lot of people have never seen an order book before, are like, what do I like? What does it mean to like make a trade? What's a market order? What you know, maker or taker or order? All these things, and it's like confusing. Whereas on Uniswap, it's like swap this for this. Here's your fee. Hit the button. Like w- once you get past the, the the MetaMask setup, right, or or the wallet setup, the rest is quite sim- <laughs> it's quite simple. You just kind of have to get past it, right? And um and I think more and more people, um a- as more creators, whether it be artists or people like Gary Vee, Gary V probably is responsible for creating at least a hundred thousand new new metamask wallets just just to get his fan base involved in the community. And more people like that getting involved is a great thing, because it's not that hard. It just takes a second to get set up and to be secure about it. Um, but but just as you said, once you get past that, it opens up just an entire new world that people get really excited about.
1: Yeah. Also, on top of you know that. Lowering the hurdle for financial access. Another aspect that we should talk about here is also starting early, right? The mentality and thinking ahead and try to plan ahead your finances. And maybe Justin, you're probably one of the artists or creators or musicians that are out there probably started very early compared to many others. And was there a moment that you've kind of realized that this was important to start early or? Was there like aha moment or like how did you figure out that this was something that you wanted to focus because from some other, um, you know, podcasts and videos you have also shared, like you was very focused on saving your money for first several years of your career. We're just curious, like how did you arrive at that conclusion and that path?
2: Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I read a lot of books about it. I, I think that was, that was a big part You're studying finance and, and reading a lot of books about, you know, how to live off of your, you know, how to live off of I, I hate using the word the phrase passive income, but how, how to live comfortably without having to work at a young age, you know, what does it take to get there? Well, it takes saving, right? It takes saving and compounding. And from the time I was 20, or really 19, and I started to make any money, um, I really didn't spend much of it on luxury items at all for a very long time. The only luxury item I owned was a beautiful, beautiful condo in Las Vegas, don't get me wrong, but real estate, right? An investment of sorts, a primary resident and investment. Um, but, you know, never really owned watches, never really bought a fancy sports car until maybe three years ago, um, but really just wanted to optimize for compounding and, and earning yield on whatever capital I had, mostly investing in, in multifamily real estate and then eventually crypto, right? Um, those two things and you know people are trained to you know put money in an IRA and you know buy equities and do do kind of all these traditional things and i was always interested in you know diving a little bit deeper and I think now, there, like you said, Leslie, earlier, there is like this cultural shift where like people have more access to investing. And in. so now they're really starting to be curious, like, what should I invest in? What should I do? And, and the, the best answer is there isn't, there isn't an answer. <laughs> you know, it all depends on your risk tolerance. And, and, you know, if someone tells you to invest in something with, with fervor, stay stay as far away from that as possible if someone is super passionate about like you need to do this that's exactly the person you don't want to be listening to you want to be listening to the person who you want to be listening to the person who says well if you think this way then maybe it's a good idea but if you think this way it's not a good idea you you want want the person who's the most skeptical to advise you on, on what to do but um my general thesis has always been um if people need something or if, if there's an inefficiency that exists, that's where I want to be deploying my, my capital. So people always need a place to live, which is why I've always been pretty heavily weighted in real estate. No matter what, land ownership and, and home ownership, uh, multifamily, all, all that kind of stuff is um, also difficult to find access to for most people. But that's starting to change, which is fun. Um, but, but investing in real estate is always, is always a great way, even fractional real estate, um, which is now a thing. Is, is, is seems to be always a great move. And then in my case, I, I've always been a fan of Bitcoin ETH and, and really interesting protocol technologies. And so I've, I've, played, I've deployed a lot of capital there. But I think, you know, to get to the point, I think that being, you know, cautious about spending is always the number one thing, because even a, a little bit goes a long way over time. People always like to think that they can, you know, really make something happen overnight, but it, but it doesn't work that way. Um, it, it, what's publicized is the stuff that happens overnight. Right. In, in my case, you know, I had a lot of NFT sales and there were a lot of publications that talked about this, this dollar amount in the headline, like this kid made this amount of money, like overnight. Not really. <laughs> it, didn't, it was four years of like making mistakes and fucking up a lot. Um, no one knows that I, you know, through this crypto music festival and had to shut down the company afterward and was like really upset and depressed for a year. Um, because it didn't work out, (laughs) you know, like no one sees that side of it. So um, I I would say that with anything, you know, and and preserving capital, preserving capital and deploying capital in in low-risk ways is always a great place to start. And then when you have enough that you feel like you can live on is when you can start getting riskier. But I certainly wouldn't recommend, you know, being risky off the bat, right? Um, Being Mm -hmm. risky is scary. And, you know, if you make a mistake and you lose everything and you can't live, like you you never want to like... Lose, lose everything, right? And, and that happens to a lot of people um, in in very terrible ways. It happened in two thousand and eight, and we've kind of been in an, in an overall bull market since then. So no one's really felt pain yet, real pain. Um, but it can happen at any moment. So, um, I'm, so people in crypto have experienced pain uh, yes. <laughs> from from 2017. but no one's experienced like overall like market pain the same way everyone did in two thousand and eight, right? Two thousand and eight was just an absolute clusterfuck, and we haven't seen like widespread market pain like that in a long time, but that could easily happen again, and it probably will at some point, right. So, um, so yeah, I think that my, my best advice is, is save. Um, budget money for fun. Keep it as a very low percentage of your net worth. Um, another like for, for a lot of people out there who like cars, I love cars, but I would never spend more than like 3% of my net worth on cars. That's like my personal max. That's what I tell everyone else too. like 3% absolute max. And that's already crazy, in my opinion. (laughs) Right. So, um, you know, there's certain like rules that you create for yourself. But in reality, you know, I guess the final thought on on preserving wealth and for new creators that are making any money at all. um, Two to four percent is a magical thing. It's absolutely magical. People forget like they're like two percent. What's that? Like, yeah, maybe it doesn't seem like a lot, but over time, it is so powerful, and you know, for everyone listening who's like interested in yield-based products, two um, to four percent, as little as it seems over time, is so substantial. And you can simply do the math, where start with ten thousand dollars in a spreadsheet, type in um, one point zero four um, in another column, and then you know, put it to whatever power you want as the years, right? the 1.04 to whatever power you want and watch how that $10,000 multiplies over time. Um, When I did that for the first time in college, like, you know, just learning, learning this stuff in finance, like actually seeing in an Excel spreadsheet and seeing as the years go by, like what $10,000 looks like in 30 years, you're just like, holy shit. I didn't realize that, right? Because, you know, everyone thinks in the short term. So yeah, long term thinking and, and low risk stuff is always good to start. And then getting riskier when you feel comfortable is also always fun. But For most people, start easy. Start slow and start.
0: (laughs) Yeah, crypto dollars are typically the nice first conversion. Just taking what you have in the bank that you don't necessarily need for your everyday expenses or monthly expenses, and the rest, if you don't want increased market exposure to Bitcoin and Ethereum and all those other tokens, just put them in USDC, right? Very safe, stable coin, and immediately you can be earning up to 10%, even more, on some platforms, depending on how you're using it. And just making that initial conversion is so powerful because oh, yeah. the way you move cash around via crypto dollars, I mean, that experience, my mom was like, wait a minute, oh, it's how crazy. do you already have my my cash? Wait, I spent so long just trying to initiate that through Chase. And I was like, yeah, mom, I mean, this is crypto. And she's when like, you feel oh, it, this you is feel crypto? it,
2: right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> This is crypto, right? No, but seriously, <laughs> though, it's, uh, everyone has that, that aha moment. And um, the Oh, the other thing real quick, I forgot to mention is like, don't go all in at one time, unless you're really experienced and you know what you're doing. But like, buy a little bit over time. If you're, if you're interested in buying Bitcoin and Ethereum, like I, I, to this day, I, you know, whatever I've had in the past, I'm still buying over time in small amounts. Like, I I I, bought, I I take like a lot of yields and convert it to ETH. A lot of the time, like half the time, I convert it to ETH. Half the time, I convert it back to more stable and and put it back in the pool. You know, like you just doing multiple things and and thinking about it on a day by day basis and brick by brick. It's not it's not a it's it's a marathon. It's not a sprint, right? So
1: yeah, definitely. And like you mentioned, it, it's like the power of compounding just can never be overemphasized. I think it's just like when you do that spreadsheet. Put in 4% versus 5% versus 6% and it's going to be crazy amount different 30 years after. So maybe you're thinking 4 and 5% is not different, but go for that 5% if the risk is the same. I would say that.
2: Yeah, um, yeah, def- definitely. That's true. That is true too. <laughs> but the difference between 4 and like 4,000, that that's where you <laughs> that's it. Right, right. That's, like
1: diff- that's like a different risk profile. So we don't recommend that here, <laughs> but.
2: <laughs> oh, man.
1: So what kind of... um. DeFi stuff. Do you manage your own, or do
2: you have like? A... I do. I, I do. I've I've always preferred to to do it to manage my own uh, stu- mm. stuff, um, even even venture investments and and all that kind of stuff. I I, I do mm-hmm. have an LLC and you know I I do manage my own DeFi stuff. I think for me, my first kind of entry point into DeFi was probably Ju- June June of last year. So I was a little bit late to the party, but like. I, I had really only been a BTC ETH guy, and then all of a sudden, this DeFi thing started exploding, and it it still felt really risky to me, regardless mm-hmm. of the audits and whatnot. Um, but you know, I, I, I started you know messing around with the 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 urine vaults, the wire and vaults, and um, and Curve, and all all that stuff, just like experimenting with it, experimenting with borrowing, and then I became addicted. And then I did a lot of risky stuff. Uh, um, lost money. Itchy, right? <laughs> oh yeah, lost a lot of. Um, so like, no one is immune. You could, you things can be audited, and you can still get hacked. I had, I had a significant amount of money. I had six figures in, in a pool that got hacked. Lost all of it. Um, you know, it happens, uh, and you know, it's just part of the, it's part of the journey. So be be prepared for it, right? Like, I always like to tell people, you know. They're, they're The people that are bragging about how much money they've made are not telling you all the f- things they fucked up. And I always like to tell everyone the things that, that I fucked up, which is like, you know, losing six figures in a in a in a hacked in a in a flash loan liquidity pool. Like it happens, you know, so it's it, it sucks It's fucking terrible, but it does happen. It's very experimental, um, you know, and, and that's why being careful is really important, you um, I actually, you know, did an OTC trade with Amber the other day, um, you know, and Amber is like a great trusted party. Amber has great structured products, which are awesome. And like there's infinite opportunities. And if you're new to crypto, definitely don't dive into just buying random tokens right away. Like definitely don't do that. Um, but there's so many resources where you can learn and figure out what you're really excited about, what you really believe in and put your money w- with into things that you really believe in. From a technological standpoint, not just like a, hey, this uh, Einstein coin is going to the moon, you know, and we're going to just throw some money at that. It's probably a bad idea. Doesn't mean you can't make money, but it's still probably a bad idea. Yeah, don't FOMO
1: (laughs) into stuff. It's a bad idea, usually.
2: Yeah, and and I I can't stress it enough. My number one rule is if someone is super insistent about something is exactly when you shouldn't do it. 100%. Yeah. Yeah.
0: If Elon is tweeting about it, well, I guess he's not doing it as much anymore. But you know, during during that period, right? It's uh, it's probably the same thing not to keep following him for crypto advice. Is probably what I would say.
2: <laughs> he's a, he's a riot. I think he's he's on a different level of a human being. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. <it's>
2: a- <laughs> he might be a sociopath. I'm not really sure. <laughs>
1: like uh, probably is. I mean, like to be that successful or navigate through all that. I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if something similar to that, yeah. I guess um, one other question that i just curious if you're comfortable breaking it down for us is maybe some of the um, listeners are curious about, like, how your portfolio looks like, the breakdown of just, like, asset classes. Like, what are you investing yeah. in? Um, how big of crypto exposure do you, uh, are you personally doing it? Maybe it could be a reference for um, other people who are thinking about Yeah,
2: it. I'm happy to share. I'm, I'm, like, in percentages, for sure. I think... Um... So, I mean, it's it's changed. It it always changes, right? Um, Like real estate, right? (laughs) Sorry,
1: no, because of crypto. Right? Because of crypto, exactly.
2: (laughs) Well, I I kind of I have a spreadsheet that I track everything on, and I have what I call secure net worth and insecure net worth, and the combination of the two is total. And the insecure moves around like crazy, but the secure is always there. I know the secure is always there and I've always kept it that way, right? With like risk assets and low risk assets. But um, I would say like 35, I'm looking at it right now, 35% of my net worth is in real estate, both personal, including personal, but um, multifamily real estate assets and other types of real estate assets. Um, I've always been a real estate guy. It's tried and true. And um, as long, you know, like, People always need a place to live. Real estate is not the most accessible asset class, though, for most people. Um, for, for a lot of reasons, it's becoming more accessible. You can get exposure through REITs. I imagine there's going to be a lot of like crypto real estate related projects. I know there are a bunch of people working on that stuff. It'll be very interesting to see what fractionalized real estate looks like um, with like real estate DAOs. That might be securities, but like that'll be cool. Someone's going to figure it out. Um, so, yeah, real estate is always a big part of, of my portfolio. Um, so yeah, it's like it's thirty five percent real estate. Um, then like I've actually always kept my volatile crypto assets, including Bitcoin and ETH, um, to twenty percent. Um, it's it it's it was way higher than that at one point recently. Um, but I actually but like because it was so high, I, I trim it back. So um, like volatile crypto assets, uh, probably twenty percent. Um, Stable coin stuff, probably another 20%, um, and then everything else is like high risk. So that's kind of my, my distribution and, and stable coins plus cash. Uh, maybe if you include the cash, the cash is probably only 5%. <laughs> uh, it actually is only, only 5% cause why not keep it in USDC and, and, uh, right. why not? Right.
1: It's a yield. Yeah.
2: So, yeah, um, that's, that's my distribution, but I, I would reckon like, it, it depends, you know, it, it's a very personal thing, right? It's there isn't a right answer. Um honestly, like I probably will buy more BTC soon. Um and more ETH soon again. Um definitely felt like things were pretty crazy uh to buy a couple months ago. But right. um, I very rarely sell. I just keep buying it. And uh Yeah, lo- long-term, yeah. I think th- there's no question I think in any of our minds since we're having this conversation that this all of this stuff long term is extremely powerful and we've seen it you know forever how how for however long you guys have been involved which is probably longer than me um, I, I I really like when you believe in it and you use it and you see it and you feel how functional it is and how much better it is than everything that exists in the non in, in the regular fiat world there's no question in my mind that this stuff will be more valuable in the future it might like tank before it does become more valuable in the future but it will be more valuable in the future right <laughs> so.
0: Market cycles will always be a thing, but, you know, if you're here for it, you're willing to kind of push through and use the downtime, right? Or the market correction period as a learning period. And I think that's exactly what you've done. And yeah, it only serves. we've all done. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's it's what we've all done. And I mean, yes, we've been in crypto for a really long time, but honestly, it still feels so overwhelming. Like you have your few various media outlets that you go to, right? Top of the news type of thing, just to get understanding what's going on in the markets. And then there's a whole like research and analysis portion of it that is getting better and better every single year because yeah, people are moving from banking, you know, equity analysts moving from banking and being like, analyzing DeFi protocols is so much more interesting. And so we're seeing this flood of talent coming over into crypto. And because of that, more content that is being put out you know, month after month, year after year, that makes it easier in some ways, but also just makes things so much harder because you have to sift through all the information to figure out what works for you,
2: right? That's very true. There is a lot of, there's also a lot of bad, like there always has been bad information, but I think it's more difficult to distinguish between the bad and good information today as compared to in the past where maybe it was a little more obvious. Um, No one's right. Everyone, Everyone has an opinion. I always like to stress that. And some people just happen to have really good opinions and, and most of the time. And when you find those people, like I, I read um, Paul Veratataket at Pantera. is a very, very close friend of mine. And I read his newsletter every time it comes in my inbox, right? Because I know that he has a great pulse on what's happening in the world. Um, you know, hearing, you know, Fred Erism, um is a good friend of mine as well. And, you know, he, he sent a great, he sent me a great paper that he wrote to all of their portfolio companies at Paradigm, um, how to survive, how to survive a crypto cycle. And it's just a two-page two pager on the emotions of a crypto cycle and like how to think about them, like all those types of readings from people who are really credible who have achieved a lot in the space. Um, those are the types of readings I would encourage everyone to go, you know, look at and listen to, um, not the random Twitter chartist who shows a, you know, 500% profit in a week. Like, those are not the people to listen to. But the people who have pedigree and, you know, um, and, and experience, finding those people um, and, and reading what they have to say is really powerful.
0: One thing that comes across, you know, very clearly in a lot of your previous recordings and, and conversations is your desire to invest in people which I think is super awesome. And in one interview, you said you like to invest in people with crazy ideas, and there are tons of these people. Um, who is someone you're proud to have supported over the years, who you invested in you know, very early on and you've seen grow and yeah, just kind of on their That's path to great, be successful?
2: I have a great answer to that question. And it's not an actual investment of capital, it was more of an investment in time and effort. Um, but Elenium who's another musician, um, who is now now as of yesterday, the highest ticket selling electronic artist in the world of all time, because of the arena show that he that I that I just played with him. Um, he opened for me on tour five six years ago. I just thought he was incredibly talented. If I could have invested in him in some way shape or form at the time, <laughs> I would have. But that product didn't exist. Um, but just even like you know. I wanted him to come on tour with me because I believed in him. And what's so cool is he, you know, six years later, paid it forward. He did this giant arena show in Las Vegas at the new stadium and asked me to open the show. And that that interaction is just so powerful the the symbiosis of believing in people can be so powerful Mm -hmm. in so many ways. Um, and, And and yeah, I think that's that's like my favorite part of about being a creative is investing in other creators, whether it be. You know, there hasn't been a way to do it financially. There, there might be soon, um, but um, even time-wise, it's it's really powerful.
1: Yeah. So, how how was playing in that concert? Um, was that yesterday or a it was days yesterday?
2: Ago? Yeah. After oh my god. Ago, it was crazy. I'm still. I'm sure the crowds went crazy. <laughs> Wait, it wasn't. It was actually two days ago, but it feels like yesterday because yesterday was just a re- recovery day. <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't fall asleep to, like four because mm. I was still excited. Um, no, it was it was incredible. I think one of the best parts of you know, being a creator is, is getting to make music and then play it for a bunch of people and see how they react. Sometimes they don't react. Mm. It's it's not always the reaction expected, expect, but that's what makes it fun.
0: We'd love to just end on one note here, which which we know is very important to you. And, and that's on the topic of charity, right? And, mm. and paying it forward, giving back. And you've just been really involved in helping underserved communities over the years. So what are some causes that, you're supporting now or that you're looking to support going forward this year
2: definitely so I, i've always been a huge advocate of equal access to education and information so most of the philanthropy that i've done throughout my life has been to education-based philanthropies and charities i've particularly worked with it with an organization called pencils of promise who build schools in, in the developing world and i I've built many schools in in Guatemala, in Laos, and uh, I visited a bunch of the schools a couple times actually already uh, in life, and it's just been an incredible experience. Um, But I'm also really looking forward to funding a lot of, you know, crypto-related education resources from trusted parties. I I still think, you know, you can find a lot of stuff on Google, but having, you know, I've invested in a couple of companies that are that are really looking to to democratize information about NFTs and about DeFi. And I think I think that's super, super important um, because information is so easily manipulated for the wrong reasons. And, you know, any type of education based cause has always been the most important to me, Um, mainly because if people can find out about something, they can help themselves. And the most powerful way to help someone is to help them help themselves. Um, and, and so, and that's, that's why I've always been passionate about that stuff. But, you know, but still always like to give to other, other types of charities, whether like to me, disaster, like just from a personal background standpoint, anything that's di- disaster relief oriented, I'm, I'm a big supporter of, um, having, you know, lived through nine eleven in New York, it was pretty fucking crazy. And so I'll always kind of like have that part of me that wants to give back to those types of communities. Um, but but mostly, you know, the number one cause that I'm excited about at all times is education-based causes and, you know, anything that democratizes information.
1: I think education is such a wonderful thing to invest in. I mean, we talk about compounding and capital, but knowledge also compounds. And then earlier you learn, the more you know later on that you can grab onto new information. So I think that's a great way to help
2: those who are in need. 100%. Thank you guys for having me. This was super fun.